Identity is something we hear a lot about these days, whether it's talking about how people self-identify you know, themselves certain ways today, or we're talking about protecting your identity or identity theft. We just hear a lot about identity and, and protecting your identity, especially when you're online, is such an important thing. Have you ever experienced a case of mistaken identity? Have you ever seen somebody, you thought it was one person, maybe you went up and started talking to them and realized they were somebody else? You ever done that? Yeah, or maybe that's happened to you. You've been mistaken for somebody else that you weren't. And, you know, usually when that happens, it's, it's embarrassing, but it's rarely, you know, dangerous when that happens. Well, when I was in Israel, I had a little case of mistaken identity as well. Um, I had a small issue there. Now, you might remember that for some strange reason, uh, I decided to grow a beard that winter. And I, I don't know why I did that. My wife and daughter told me I could never do that again. But I had grown a beard, and, uh, and I was over there in Israel. Now, my, on my passport, my passport photo, I was clean-shaven, right? So, and, and it was taken maybe a few years earlier, so that picture. So, when, when we were getting ready to leave the country, and granted, this was like 2 in the morning, and I had my baseball cap on, and I looked pretty disheveled. It had been a long week. So, we're standing there, and, and security in Israel is top-notch. They do not mess around. And so, I'm standing there at this little booth. This guy's got my passport, and he's looking at my picture and looking at me. Looking at my picture. Looking at me. Looking at my picture. Looking at me. And I'm starting to sweat. You know, I'm starting, okay, this, what, what's going on here? He said, can you take your hat off? So I took my hat off. He looked at this picture looked at me. I said, you know, I, I don't have a beard in the picture. He looked at the picture looked at me. I hope you enjoyed your stay. And he still looked at me kind of suspicious, right, as I, as I walked away. I, you know, so I was you know, kind of a little worried about that. But, but you know, it's just, it, it amazed me how little it can take to throw off your identity where people don't recognize you. He couldn't recognize me by my picture because I had a hat on and I had a, a beard. Or, you know, those of you that have like facial recognition on your phone with the masks or with sunglasses, it's just like it doesn't know who you are. You take off those sunglasses. Oh, now, now it's you. You know, which kind of helps you understand how, you know, Superman, all he has to do is put on a suit and tie and some glasses and nobody knows that it's Superman, right? All of a sudden he becomes Clark Kent. Well, our identity and being recognized for who we are, you know, of course it involves our appearance, but it also involves our voice, right? And there's voice recognition and things like that. And it's a little harder to disguise your voice, but the better you know somebody, the better you can recognize them over the phone. You know, even then sometimes, you know, I might call, one of you might call somebody and, you know, let's say you've got a, a son that answers the phone instead of you and, and maybe he sounds a lot like you. I might mistake one for the other. So even with our voices, we can still have mistaken identity. And then if you really know somebody, you can, you can see them even from a distance. You know that's them because of their mannerisms, right? The way they stand, the way they walk or run, the, you know, the way they use their hands when they talk. I don't know anybody who does that. But these are all things that we use to recognize and identify people. Well, the question I have for us this morning is, how do we recognize Jesus? How do we recognize His identity? How do we know when Jesus shows up? What are His defining characteristics? Thankfully, we've got the Bible, especially the Gospels, to really help us to learn how to recognize Jesus' voice and His movements in our world and in our lives. But, but for the people around Jesus during his life and ministry, that wasn't necessarily an easy thing to do. And plenty of people misidentified who Jesus was, what he was about, what it was that he came to do. And some people didn't recognize Jesus 
as the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Well, we've been walking with Jesus through Mark's Gospel, discovering who Jesus was, who Jesus is. And you may remember the very first sermon in this series, the title was, you probably don't remember, what am I, what am I saying? That was, you know, that was in February. But the very first sermon in this series was entitled, Who is Jesus? And so we kind of come back to that question here at the end. You might remember that Mark's Gospel in Mark 1.1, it begins with Mark kind of telling us why he's writing this Gospel, what his purpose is. And it's so that we can understand and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Mark has written his Gospel to help us understand Jesus' identity, but throughout we see how many people, even some of those closest to him, didn't understand, didn't recognize him. And now that we've come to the cross, to the moment for which Jesus was born, it finally becomes clear. And we're going to look through the eyes of three different people who were there, who witnessed Jesus' death on the cross. And my hope is that we can begin to see more clearly, truly, who that man on the cross was. So we're going to just read through this together, and then we'll go back and and look at some different verses. But we're going to start in Mark chapter 15, beginning with, with verse 16. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. And after they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling, insulted him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the centurion of the temple, I'm sorry, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. The first person I want us to think about was Simon of Cyrene. And to Simon, Jesus was the Passover lamb who saves. Think about Simon. Simon came to Jerusalem with his family, with Alexander, Rufus, maybe other children, his wife, and they came to celebrate the Passover. He came to celebrate the Passover, but never in his wildest dreams did he think he would meet the Passover lamb. If you look back at verses 33 and 34, we see that at noon, darkness covered the whole land until three in the afternoon. That darkness reminds us of the ninth plague against Egypt. Remember, the next to last plague against Egypt was a plague of darkness. Exodus says it was a darkness that could be felt. This was no just cloudy day or an eclipse. It was a true darkness. And we know that that preceded a a, a very dark moment when the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn, came upon Egypt. And that's what Passover was about. If they put the blood of the lamb that was slain over the doors, then the death angel would pass over them and they would be saved. Well, here God the Father announced that His firstborn Son was giving His life as an ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world, that Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb. He was enduring a darkness that could be felt. Now look up at verse 23. It says they tried to give Him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus didn't want the pain of this moment to be deadened. He didn't want his suffering to be softened. He rejected the cup of comfort and sympathy so he could drink fully the cup of suffering and wrath. That's what Jesus endured on the cross for you and me as the ultimate and final Passover lamb. It was a cup of immense suffering. Roman crucifixion was the most brutal form of execution ever devised. It was so horrific that Romans considered it impolite to discuss it in public. And when Romans did talk about it, the word they used to describe it was obscene. The word excruciating in the English language comes from the Latin word for crucify. And excruciating means that it's extremely painful, causing intense suffering, unbearably distressing, torturous. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 22. We'll put it up on the screen also. Psalm 22 prophetically describes Jesus' crucifixion hundreds of years before Rome invents this method of execution. Listen to some of this description. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. For example, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night. Yet I have no rest. That's what Jesus cried out on the cross. Look at verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. And then look at verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. 
For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. It was a cup of immense suffering that we can't begin to fathom. And it was also a cup of wrath. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. God turned His gaze from Jesus because when God the Father looked at His Son on the cross, He saw you and me. He saw our wickedness and our rebelliousness and God turned His gaze away from His Son. Roman law prescribed that the criminal had to carry his cross to the place of execution as a public sign of his guilt and his shame. And so Jesus began his journey to Golgotha carrying his cross. But because of the abuse he had suffered all night, because of the immense torture he had already suffered at the hand of the Roman flogger, Jesus could no longer carry it any further. Jesus was to carry his cross because he had been found guilty. Now we know Jesus was innocent. But he had been declared guilty. We are the guilty ones. We are the guilty party. Not Jesus. And so Simon of Cyrene, standing in for you and me, was called out of the crowd and the cross was placed on his shoulder. He bore the cross for Jesus as a reminder to us that Jesus died in our place. Jesus bore the punishment that you and I deserve. He carried our guilt and shame on Calvary. But Jesus did more than just that. He did more than just carry our sin on the cross. Jesus became sin for us on the cross. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless in every way. But God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become The righteousness of God. The darkness that day not only reminds us of that ninth plague and points to Jesus as the Passover lamb, but darkness in the Old Testament also could symbolize the powerful presence and holiness of God. In Exodus 20.21 it says, The people remained at a distance from Mount Sinai while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I think that darkness also shows us that God was not only present at the cross, but God was present on the cross. But the eyes of God the Father could not look in that moment upon His only begotten Son. His eyes were diverted. His voice was silent. And this was the bitterest drink from that cup of wrath. This was the most severe of that cup of suffering. God the Son took our sin upon and into Himself and He suffered the forsaking of the Father that you and I deserve. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones who deserve to bear that cross. We're the ones who deserve to suffer in darkness. We're the ones that God should divert His eyes from. But Jesus did all of that for us on the cross And this was necessary because, listen, forgiveness is not the same thing as amnesty. It's not that God just forgets our sin. 
It's not that God chooses to ignore our sin. Sin must be paid for, and the price for sin is death and hell. Hell is separation from the loving presence of God. And even though Jesus suffered that only for a short time, to an eternal, infinitely holy God, that moment was hell. You and I can't even begin to fathom what that was like for God the Son to experience the abandonment of God the Father in that moment. Jesus suffered our hell. He paid our price. Look at verse 37. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed His last. Luke 23, 46 gives us a fuller description. You know, Mark, Mark is always short on details and, and on words, right? He's, he's getting us there in a hurry. But Luke tells us, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when He said this, He breathed His last. And John 19.30 adds that Jesus said, It is finished. With that, He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Listen, Jesus was not murdered. Jesus was not murdered on the cross. Jesus willingly laid down His life for us. Several times in His ministry, Jesus predicted this. Jesus said that He would willingly lay down His life for us. In John 10.18, Jesus said, No one takes it. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus was no martyr. Jesus willingly sacrificed Himself for you and me. He was not a victim. He was a victor in this moment. As the song says, He became sin who knew no sin that we might become His righteousness. This is the great exchange that happened on that cross. Jesus willingly took our sinfulness upon Himself and He traded us His righteousness. He suffered the death and hell you and I deserve so we could receive the free gift grace of life abundant and eternal. What an exchange. Jesus is the final, ultimate Passover lamb. And when we're under His blood, the wrath of God passes over us. Secondly, to the thief, Jesus is the outcast who welcomes sinners. Now you may remember, we talked about this last week, Pilate offered to release either Jesus or this guy named Barabbas. And Barabbas was an actual criminal. He had a violent history. He led a rebellion that ended up in the deaths of many people. And the crowd chose to have Barabbas released and Jesus crucified. Now the Greek word that Mark uses to describe Barabbas is the same word that's used here for these criminals, these robbers. It means an insurrectionist. So these weren't just guys who, I don't know, you know, smashed a windshield and, or, or, or I don't know, hit a donkey. I don't know, whatever. They didn't. It wasn't a smash and grab, right? These guys weren't shoplifters. These guys were violent insurrectionists. They were co-conspirators with Barabbas. Barabbas should have been on that cross between his buddies. But instead it's Jesus. These men were outcasts. These men were estranged from society, and now Jesus is among the outcast and the estranged. And the religious leaders hated Jesus so much, it wasn't enough just to have Jesus sentenced to die. No, they had to follow Him. 
to Golgotha. They had to openly mock Him as He suffered and died on the cross. And the crowd that accompanied them continued to follow their bad example. Look at verses 29 and 30. They mocked Jesus for being a prophet. Those who passed by were yelling insults at Him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. They mocked Him as a prophet. They mocked Him as a Savior. Look at verse 31. In the same way the chief priests with the scribes were mocking Him among themselves and saying He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. And they mocked Him as King. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so we may see and believe. But what the Jews on that hill saw as mockery, one of those two thieves began to see as hope. Yeah, he started off mocking Jesus. He joined in the insults. But Romans would place a placard above the head of whoever was being crucified to declare the charges. Here's why this person is dying, because one of the points of of crucifixion was to be an example, to sort of a a, a deterrent to other people committing that crime. John 19, 19 gives us a fuller phrase of the placard that was over Jesus' head. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now imagine as, as the crowd, as these people are mocking Jesus, imagine that one thief maybe reads that sign. And maybe his thought process goes something like, like this, Jesus. Okay, that's the, basically the name Joshua. It means the Lord saves. Jesus, maybe this man can save me. Of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? This man's an outcast like me, king of the Jews. Maybe there's room in his kingdom for me. And so... Luke tells us the thief asked Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A simple request of faith. A simple act of throwing himself upon the mercy of Christ. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And as Jesus breathed his last, and as he cried out with that loud voice, verse 38, here in Mark, tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain separated the holy area of the temple from the holiest, from the holy of holies, where in Solomon's temple the Ark of the Covenant resided. This is where the presence, the Shekinah glory of God would descend and dwell. And in Jesus' day, even though there was no Ark there, it was still where the high priest would go in one day a year. And he would offer a sacrifice to make atonement, to cover over the sins of the people. And if anybody but the high priest ever went into that room... They fell down dead. If the high priest ever went into that room at the wrong time, or if he didn't follow the proper purity rituals, he would fall down dead. But Jesus, the Passover lamb, the final sacrifice for our sins on that cross, he made the once for all final sacrifice and the temple, was, the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. No longer would there be a separation between a holy God and a sinful people because through Jesus, the door is thrown wide open for whosoever will may come. As Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. 
Verses 11 through 22 is a great uh, explanation of this, helping us understand the meaning of all of this. But I want us to especially focus on uh, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, not the curtain of of the temple, no, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Jesus is the new and living way for us to enter into the presence of God. His body crucified for us is the only curtain. He is the only sacrifice that we need. He is our one and only priest. He cleanses us of guilt. He washes away our sins. He enables us to draw near to God with a pure and sincere heart. The thief understood that Jesus was an outcast. That Jesus chose to be an outcast so that He could welcome sinners like that man on the cross. So He could welcome sinners like you and me into the presence of a holy God. The third person we see here is the centurion. And to the centurion, Jesus is the Son of God who forever reigns. Look at uh, verses 16 through 20. And, and, And in that passage, I won't read that again, but there's a description there of a game that the Roman soldiers played. Now, Romans love to play games. The more bloody and brutal the game, the better. And one of the favorite games of Roman soldiers, especially stationed in out of the way places like uh, Palestine, was a game they called the game of kings. And the way this game played is the soldiers would pick somebody to be the king. And they would roll the dice, and the king would roll dice. And if their dice beat the king's dice, they got to take something from the king. Uh, a personal item, a piece of clothing, some money. Uh, and, and some of the rolls of the die would allow you to hurt the king in some way. You could hit him. You could kick him. You could spit on him. You could pull his hair or pull his beard. Does any of this sound familiar? In some instances, soldiers would go so far as to play until someone literally killed the king. In fact, the game had become so brutal and gotten out of hand, Caesar Augustus himself barred any Roman soldier from playing the role of the king. Rather, they'd have to find an enemy or a prisoner to play that role. To the Romans, this was all a game. Jesus was the king of the Jews. Let's play a game of kings. Let's hit him. Let's spit on him. Let's kick him. Let's pull his hair and his beard. Let us mock him. Let us gamble for his clothing. That's how these Roman soldiers viewed Jesus and treated Jesus. This was, crucifixion was a daily thing for them. It was a game. They, it was a sport for them. But look at verse 39. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the second climactic confession of faith in Mark's Gospel. You remember the first in chapter 8 when Peter himself says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here the Roman centurion makes another staggering confession. Surely this man was the Son of God. Now that kind of a of a, of a statement could have gotten him in trouble with the Jews because that was blasphemy, but even with Rome, 
Because that was considered treasonous. Son of God was actually a title reserved for the Caesars. Caesar Augustus called himself uh, Augustus the Divine, the Divine Son. And all Roman Caesars considered themselves the sons of God. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God eight times. Once by Mark in verse 1 of chapter 1, twice by demons, twice by the voice of God from heaven, twice by Jesus Himself, and then again once at the end, this Roman centurion. Now this man had seen hundreds, maybe thousands of crucifixions. He had seen many men die on crosses and in the fields of battle, but he had never seen a man die like this. This man didn't die cursing his executioners and accusers. Rather, he died forgiving them. He didn't plead for his life. Instead, he looked after his mother. And he spoke words of comfort to the thief dying next to him. He didn't die with a rimper or a groan. He died with a shout, with a cry of victory. This centurion had never seen a man die like this. Church tradition holds that this man eventually became a follower of Jesus Christ. And if that's true, this was no mere statement of awe or respect. This was a statement of faith. This morning we've seen how Simon, who bore Jesus' cross, saw him as the Passover lamb. The one who came to save the world. We've learned that one of the thieves recognized Jesus as a friend of sinners. Who opened the door to even a thief on the cross so that he could come into the kingdom of God. And this Roman centurion identified Jesus as the Son of God, the true King of all kings. But Jesus asks you this morning, who do you say that I am? How do you recognize Jesus? Well, through these three men, I hope that you can see Jesus this morning with fresh eyes. Because to sinners like you and me, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God our Savior. That's who Jesus is. I hope you know Jesus that way. Jesus is our Passover lamb. God's judgment and wrath against us, against sin, it passed over us because we are covered with the blood of Jesus. His once-for-all sacrifice provides forgiveness for all of our sins. Not because of anything you and I do. Not because we deserve it. Precisely because we don't deserve it. Because there's nothing we can do to overcome our sin. It is a free gift of grace. All we have to do is be under the blood of Jesus. Jesus offers that forgiveness. He offers salvation and eternal life to everyone. The man from Nazareth opens wide his arms to all who would repent of their sin and confess Him and come into the presence of God because we're all outcasts from the Garden of Eden. We're all enemies of God, lost in our rebelliousness and sin. But through Jesus, we can become His friends. Through Jesus, we can become sons and daughters of the King. Through Jesus, we can even become ambassadors for Christ, carrying this message of salvation to the world. He is God the Son. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that there's coming a day when every knee will bow in submission to Him, where every tongue will truthfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question for us isn't whether we will ever do that. We will. The question for us is will we do it now 
when we can experience His grace and mercy and be forgiven and be made right with God, or will we do it at the day of judgment, condemned and sentenced to an eternity in hell? In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, it says that while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. We were enemies of God. Sinners. Ungodly. This is, the, this is the difference between Christianity and religion. Because religion is about how can I make myself godly? Godliness is the goal. But the gospel tells us I can never make myself godly. The whole point is that Jesus died for me while I was ungodly. Jesus takes sinners and makes them righteous. Jesus takes dead people and makes them alive. That's what Jesus did on the cross. One theologian wrote, it must be given to us. This godliness, this righteousness must be given to us. And it has been given to us in this unrepeatable, world-overturning act of invasion of this satanic-occupied territory by the Son of God Himself. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He turns God's enemies into God's children. We can be saved from God's wrath. We can be reconciled with our Creator and forgiven of all of our sins if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we freely receive the gift that He purchased on Calvary's tree. John 3.16 tells us that God loved the world in this way. That He gave His one and only Son. And that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Have you done that? Do you know that you know that you belong to the King? That you are a son or daughter of God? Have you crossed over from death to life? If you have any doubt about that whatsoever, do not leave this place without knowing where you stand. Because eternity hangs in the balance. And eternity is a long time. Who is Jesus to you? Is He your Passover lamb? Have you allowed Him to welcome you with open arms into the kingdom of God? Not because you deserve it, but because you're a sinner? Listen, none of us here have our acts together. (laughs) We might pretend that, but we are all desperately in need of the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Every one of us. Is Jesus your Savior? I want to ask you to please stand and bow your head and close your eyes. As we sing here in just a moment... I invite you to come and to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Not in this church, not in me, not in your Sunday school teacher, not even in the waters of baptism. No, your one and only hope is in Christ alone. Do you know Him?
If you're listening on the radio or online, do you know Him? Have you trusted your life to Him? I pray that you would do that today. And it's very simple. You simply say, Jesus, I know that I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I've lived a life of rebellion against a holy God. And I deserve death and hell. But Jesus, I believe that you love me and you died on the cross for my sins. And so I put my faith and trust in what you have already done for me. And I ask you to make me clean. Forgive me. Make me right with God. I give you my life. Help me to live for you. The Bible says if you call upon the name of the Lord, believing that Jesus died and rose from the grave, if you confess with your mouth that He is your Lord, salvation is yours. I hope you'll do that today. There may be others here who need to make another decision. To unite with this church, to to express the fact that they've already come to faith in Jesus by being baptized, whatever God has laid on your heart. Let's be obedient today. Father, I pray that your Spirit would move and work in our lives. And Father, those of us that do know you, may we leave this place taking this same message with us to share with those around us who don't know you. God, you've placed at least one person in each of our lives that we can share the hope of glory with. Help us to do that.